Uh, well, this morning, uh, if you're visiting with us, or maybe you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, or maybe you just missed this, but uh, for the summer, for July, just for this month, we're doing a short series. We're taking a break from our overview of the Gospels. We are going to come back to that at the beginning of August, and we'll finish that out this year. But for July, just for a summer series, what we did is we were asking you over the last few weeks uh, questions that you have, questions that pop up. Uh, maybe about the Bible, questions about uh, different doctrines, how it intersects with our worldview, all those kind of things. And we asked you to submit them, and we got a lot of great questions. And so what we're going to do for these five weeks is try to answer some of those questions and those things. And I'll tell you, some of the sermons will be a little different than others. Some we're going to answer a bunch of questions together. Today is one big question, one big idea that comes to us. And we're going to uh, spend some time trying to answer those. And I'm going to tell you why thinking to do that and why do a series like this in that way and some of the things that we're after by doing so. One is I want us always to be a church uh, where you're free to ask questions. If there's things that you're wrestling with or you're not clear on or you're not sure about or what does the Bible say about this? Or you say the Bible says this and I'm not sure how that works or I'm struggling with that. I want you to always be able to come and ask those questions. We're not afraid of those questions because we believe that God is the God of all truth and that his truth is revealed to us in his word and he tells us and he wants us to bring those things. And so I just want you to know whether you're visiting here, or you're a member of our church or you're just somewhere in between that your questions are always welcome and we'd love for you to bring those questions. That's the first part. The second part is I think there's an importance for us to be thinking people, to be thinking deeply about God's word and what it means for our worldview and the way we live uh, when I was in seminary, one of the very first classes I took, it's called Spiritual Formation. And one of the first books assigned was a book by a guy named J.P. Moreland. And he wrote this book called Love God with All Your Mind. And in it, he talked about what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. So in Matthew chapter 24, the religious leaders of the day come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, in response to him, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And what Moreland does in this book is he talks about the importance of, as followers of Jesus that we're called to love God with the entirety of our being. And that includes our mind. That includes to be thinking and asking questions and coming to God's word and letting it stand over it. And it's important that as we grow as followers of Jesus, that our mind's part of that, that we're thinking and that we're wrestling with these things and we're seeing how they come to bear on our life. And so it's a really important part of our discipleship, to ask questions and go to God's word and be thinking about what those things are and what they mean. But then the last part I would say to you is when we think about just this series and what we're doing is we live in a time where there's a lot of uh, competing worldviews, competing things against what the word says and against what God's word says and the Bible says and the things it tells us. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter's writing to the early church that at that time was going through a great persecution. And he's reminding them that that's going to be the case. And in the face of persecution, he says this, Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And what he says is that as followers of Jesus, that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And so I want you to think about the connection of all those, of asking good questions and bringing those, to be thinking, to taking those thoughts captive and coming to God's word and wrestling with those things, but then also to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have, that we should be able to do that with those around us. And so part of it is your questions are really good questions, 
Uh, all the ones that we got are great. Uh, I think we'll be able to get through most of them. If, if we don't get through all of them, we're already, I'm already kind of planning to write to try to answer some of those. And we might do that through like our weekly e-news and that kind of thing. But we want to take seriously all those questions. But the first one that we're going to think about and look at today was I got a couple different questions about the Bible itself, where it came from and how we got it. And, and one of the questions that was behind that is how do we know that the 66 books that make up our Bible are the books or the, the writings that God wanted us to have? And behind that question, there's some questions that come with that that I think that are behind that question is, well, what about some people that say that there's some other books? And you hear that in different ways. And I'll tell you a couple of ways that I think are kind of background to what we're talking about today. One is if you pick up the Bible that's in our pew, it's the same in pretty much every Protestant church. There's different translations, but same Bible, the same information there. You'll find 66 books of the Bible, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament. But if you go to a Catholic church, you'll find some extra books. There's seven more, actually, if you go to a Catholic church and you start to go, well, what are those? And should those be in our Bible? And are those God's word? And so some of those questions come about the Old Testament. And those are good questions to ask. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic church or maybe you have friends that are in the Catholic church now and you may have those discussions together. And how should we look at that? But then also there's a narrative today about the New Testament that maybe you've been exposed to at different times. I've seen this multiple times on things like the History Channel, right? The History Channel will do a thing about the the Bible and all these things. And then they'll say, and uh, and then in the 300s AD, the church got together and decided what was the Bible. And they left a whole lot of things out. And they picked and choose. And there was a lot more than the 27 books are in the New Testament. And there should be more. And if they took all the things that it said, Christianity would look radically different. You go, oh, what do I do with that? I don't know if you've ever seen that. If you've ever watched one of those programs where they go through all those things. Or, or, or every so often, Time Magazine will come out with like the lost gospel of, right? The gospel of Thomas. And that changes everything. And should we be taking that? And you go, and maybe you thought that. Maybe you go, I don't understand. I don't know what that is. How do we trust that the 66 books that we have are God's word? And so that's what I want us to think about today. And I want us to look at and kind of work our way through. And so I'm going to tell you, if you're visiting here today, maybe you walked in today and this is your first time visiting. This is a little different than a normal sermon. I do Because we're answering these questions and we're trying to take it. And this particular one is about the Bible itself. There's a lot of things we're going to talk about that are outside the Bible and how we know that. Normally, we do what we call exegetical preaching. We take a passage of the Bible and we open it up and we go, here's what it says and here's the way it is. And this is what God was explaining and what he was saying to us. And we're not abandoning that in any way. But today's a little different for this reason, because the question that's before us. And so if you're visiting, don't let that throw you. Uh, We normally will do that. We will look at God's word towards the end here as part of this too. But I want you to know that's not the usual. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about the Trinity, uh, the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's so important to what we believe. And we're just going to work our way straight through in John chapter 14. And so we'll go right back to that next week, even in answering these questions. So that said, how can we trust the 66 books of the Bible that we have real big picture. I don't want to assume anything. And some of this might be rudimentary for some of you. And some of you, it may be helpful. And you just were afraid to ask the question. But when we look at our Bible, it's divided up into two sections. We often refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The Old Testament being the first 39 books, the New Testament being 
the 27 books at the end. If you look at your Bible, usually the New Testament and my, my Bible is like about the last that much quarter. Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, when you start to talk about what the Old Testament is, it's those first 39 books. And they're written between 1400 B.C. and 400 B.C., about a thousand year period. When we start to look at the Old Testament, 32 authors, 32 different authors over a thousand years, and they write down what God is doing and the way he's working as he speaks to his different prophets throughout history. And he's revealing to us who he is and what he's like. And they write that down in Hebrew. I don't know if you knew that, but the Old Testament is is written in Hebrew, except for just a couple of uh, chapters in the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. It's all written in Hebrew. And don't let that throw you. It's basically all Hebrew. Uh, I've heard it said before that Aramaic is to Hebrew like Portuguese is to Spanish. Really similar, but not the exact same. But largely the Old Testament is written in Hebrews. And so sometimes you'll hear the Old Testament or, or, or Jewish people will refer to that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah that are holding to just the Old Testament. They'll call it the Hebrew Bible. Or maybe you've heard it referred to before as the Tanakh. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. In Jewish circles, it's often referred to as that way. If you've not heard that before, the Tanakh, it's T-A-N-A-K. It's actually just an acronym for some Hebrew words that make up the Hebrew Bible. And so the Tanakh, the T is the Torah. Maybe you've heard that before where people talk about the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the Law or the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And so when they say the Tanakh, the T is the Torah for the first five books. But then the N, the second part of that acronym is the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And so if you look at your Bible, your English Bible that's there in front of you, kind of the second half of the New Testament where it's all those names, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all that, that's the prophets. And that's what they're talking about when they say the Tanakh, that's the N. And then the K, the last part, is the Ketavim, which is the wisdom and the poetry and the history books. And so starting with Joshua and Judges and on through, and then uh, Psalm and Proverbs and those, that makes up that part of the Tanakh. And so you say the, the T and the N and the K, right? The Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketavim, and together that is the picture of the Old Testament. Now, what you see when you read your Bible in English You read the New Testament and Jesus will quote and they'll talk about the Bible. They'll talk about the Old Testament. They're talking about the Hebrew Bible. Oftentimes they will use a similar conception to the Tanakh when they'll say things like uh, the law, the prophets and the writings. Or sometimes they say the law, the prophet and the Psalms. And that's what they mean. Those three big headings and those three big headings that make up that are the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament. Now. New Testament, the 27 books at the end, they're written later, right? They tell the life of Jesus and they start and they're written over about a 50 year period by eight different authors from about 40 AD, 40 ish AD to 90s AD. And it's written over that time period telling the life of Jesus. And so when you open and you read the New Testament, it begins with the birth of Jesus. And so it's taking place later than the Old Testament. And it's showing you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things of the New Testament. And so when you read the, the Bible, it's the New Testament is written in Greek. And there's a reason that it's Greek and not Hebrew. 
There's a reason that the language changed. If you know your history, there's a really important guy that comes on the scene about 300 BC named Alexander the Great, and he takes over the entirety of the world. And he tells everybody they're going to speak Greek and they're going to have Greek culture. And they do because he took over the world and he gets to do that. And so everybody starts to speak Greek. And so the New Testament is written in Greek. So you have the Hebrew Bible and then the Greek New Testament. And together they tell this whole story. And when you start to look at the entirety of the Bible and you start to put all of that together, what you have is it's a story that's written over 2000 years by 40 different authors on three different continents from all walks of life. Most of these people have never met the others. They've never met them. They don't know them. They've never interacted together. But yet somehow they tell this incredible story that lays out perfectly of who God is and the way he's moving. That in and of itself is a miracle. Even if you don't believe in the Bible and even if you don't believe in Jesus, the fact that we have this book that holds together in the way it does, that's written over thousands of years from all these different people. It is a miracle. It's amazing. And so I want us just to think for a second for about the Old Testament and the New Testament and those actual books. That's kind of the big idea. But when we start to think about the Old Testament itself, that thousand year period that God is calling his people and he's beginning to show them and tell them the way he's working and the way the world is and what he's saying and he's, he's speaking to them in all these different ways. Uh, Tim Mackey from the uh, Gospel Project gives a kind of good synopsis when you start to think about the Old Testament. If, if you've never looked at the, I'm sorry, I said Gospel Project. It's the Bible Project. If you've ever seen the Bible Project, they make all these cool animations and videos. They do a really good job of explaining great big concepts and putting them in short little videos. And so I'd encourage you, even as we're talking about this, go watch their videos. They're awesome. They do a great job on a lot of those. But Tim Mackey that helped start that says it this way when he talks about the Old Testament. He says it tells of an epic story about how God is working through his people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of the world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then as the Old Testament concludes, the leader has not yet come. And that's really the Old Testament. As we see the the ways in which we've sinned and we've rebelled against God and there's all these issues and all these things happening and God keeps making these promises And he keeps pursuing his people and he keeps revealing who he is. And he says, the one who's coming is going to fix it all. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. And it's pointing ahead to Jesus and what he's going to come and do. And so the Old Testament's written from that 1400 to 400 BC. And it all comes together. And it's it's put together in the the fullness of that Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh or the, the Old Testament canon around 400 BC. And we know uh, in the late 200s BC, about 280 BC, an Egyptian king named Ptolemy decides to take the, the writings of the Old Testament in Hebrew and he's, he commissions to do a Greek version of it, right? So remember what I just said. It's now 280. Alexander has blown through, taken over everything. The Jewish people, a whole lot of them, have lost the knowledge of Hebrew and don't know how to read it and write it anymore. And so he's going, well, we need this in Greek because that's what people read and what they write. And so he commissions what we call the Septuagint. If you've ever heard that before, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that takes place from about 280 B.C. down to about 100 B.C., 130. It takes about 150 years 
for him to do this translation. It becomes known as the Septuagint, and it has to do with the number of scholars that worked on it and the Greek number for 70. And so that's why they call it that. And the Septuagint is important for us to know because when Jesus is born, when he comes at that time, the Old Testament is there, and it is put in a language that people can understand and they can read at the time, and they're using it in the synagogues throughout the land. And so when Jesus comes, the Old Testament is set. It's there. And so we have the Old Testament of those 39 books. Now, full disclosure, when they do the Septuagint, they actually have some other books that the Catholics now have in their Bible, what we refer to as the Apocrypha. They get added to that as part of it. But from the very beginning, those extra books, what we refer to as the Apocrypha, those extra books that are now in the Catholic Bible, they're not considered scripture. They're just considered good things that are kind of helpful with the history of Israel and things that happen. And they're written after that 400 BC, between 400 and 100. They're not written in Hebrew. Oftentimes they're talking about things that happened way before. They're not written by the eyewitnesses like the rest of scripture is. And so they took those and they said they're good and they're beneficial and they're helpful, but they're not scripture, even though they were including it with the Septuagint. And so that's part of where the the question comes why there's extra books. But you get to the end of this uh, in the days of Jesus, and we have the Old Testament set, these 39 books that are considered scripture that God has been speaking and he has been doing and he has been showing. And it's this incredible uh, mix of history and poetry and, and, and wisdom and the prophets and all these things that hold together. Now, important part, in, in my mind, the most important part when we get to the validity of the Old Testament and the 39 books that are there. Jesus comes on the scene. God himself in the flesh. The very heart of everything that we believe that God has come to us. And he comes in and he puts his stamp of approval on those books. The 39 books of the Old Testament. And he'll say this over and over. In the way he talks. In the way he quotes. And what he says, for example, in Matthew chapter five, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so when he talks that way and he says things like the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. He'll say the same thing over and over in different ways, but he'll say it very clearly in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 takes place after Jesus has died and been resurrected and he goes and he meets with his disciples and he gathers together and it says this in Luke chapter 24. He says to them as they're gathered together, he says, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything about me and the law of Moses, the Torah and the prophets And the Psalms must be fulfilled, right? That's the Tanakh. That's the whole of the conception right there, the way he says it. And he says, it's all pointing to me. And then it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so Jesus says, this is God's word. And it's been pointing ahead to him and that you have this. And he puts his stamp of approval on those 39 books that are our Old Testament. And so we start to go, well, that is why that we hold and we have those in our Bible. The law, the prophets, And the writings or the law of the prophets and the Psalms, it means those 39 books of the Old Testament. It was accepted at the time. The believing community of the day understood that this was God's word. And Jesus says this and he teaches from it and he tells it. Now, what about the extra books? 
because the Septuagint was there and those books were part of it, or at least some of them were part of it. And so should we include those extra books that we've called the Apocrypha that are now in the Catholic Bible, but they're not in ours. And so why do we do that? And should they be in there? Should we have them in there? And I'm going to say to you, I don't think we should, but I'm going to take the line that I think we've heard down through the history of our brothers and sisters in the church. From the very beginning, it was, these are not scripture, but they're beneficial. And so you may, that may surprise you from a Protestant pastor who believes in word alone, right, as our authority, that it's good to read the Apocrypha, but do so understanding they're not inspired and they're not God's word. And that was always the case within the early church. And so the reason that I would say that to you, and I feel confident in saying it's not God's word, is that when you read through the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles quote the Old Testament. Jesus quotes all the time, everything he's saying. It is written, it is written, God's word says, he says it over and over, and he never once quotes from the Apocrypha. The apostles who quote all of the books of the Old Testament except for five in the New Testament, 35 of the 39 are quoted over and over in the Old Testament, but zero times do they ever quote from the Apocrypha. They talk about the 39 books as being God's word and being scripture and being inspired, but they never do so about those others. And so when we look to Jesus as the head of the church, we should look to him and what he says is God's word. And so those 39 books, we can be certain are God's word. I'd even tell you that when the Catholic church did their official um, version of the Bible, their official translation into Latin that's still used in masses today, right? The Latin version of the Bible. If you know the history of this, 400 AD, Jerome is commissioned to do the Latin translation. And you know what Jerome says about the Apocrypha? when he does it he says it's good and it's beneficial but it's not god's word and it's not scripture and he includes it in his translation but he gives that caveat that this is not god's word and it's not scripture but it's good for you and it's good for edification to read it john calvin martin luther the great reformers where there would become this this division over word alone versus the traditions of the church and they would point to god's word And they would say it doesn't include those books of the Apocrypha. But even those guys, right? Even those guys in the middle of that controversy say the Apocrypha is good for you to read. And it's beneficial, but it's not God's word. And so down through, we can see most importantly from Jesus's words and what he teaches us and what he says, that the 39 books of the Old Testament are what God wanted us to have. And that's what's in your Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And it tells us this incredible story of how God is moving and pointing ahead to Jesus. Now, all that said, what about the New Testament? What about the 27 books of the New Testament? I don't know if you've ever watched the History Channel. You ever watch those kind of things? I would say watch them. uh, Take everything with a big grain of salt when they start talking about the Bible. Uh, there's a very kind of uh, lane they're living in in terms of what they, the way they operate and talk about it. But what you'll get is that the New Testament, there's 27 books, but they'll say there was actually hundreds of books. There were so many books to choose from, but the church, because they wanted to have power and they wanted to put certain people down and they wanted to exclude certain people in different ways, they picked this very narrow 27 books. And you go, well, is that true? 
Or you read the Time Magazine article that says everything has changed because we found the gospel of Thomas, the lost gospel. And it teaches us some things that the other gospels don't. And it opens up new possibilities. And it's so wonderful. And maybe you read those articles and you go, is that true? Can I not trust that what I have in the 27 books of the New Testament are God's word? And I would tell you, that's it's not true. And you can trust what we have. And there's a very clear reason as to why. When they were looking at the, the canon, Old Testament and New Testament, when they came together with the New Testament, there were some very clear marks they had. First, was it an eyewitness or a close associate of an eyewitness? Check. All 27 books of the New Testament, that's true. They're all either Jesus' uh, disciples who were eyewitnesses who were right there with him or close associates of, right? Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. Mark was around at the time but younger, and he writes from Peter's recollection and his eyewitness. Uh, Luke is a friend of the church that's operating in the early church who's a historian who goes and interviews all the eyewitnesses. And then John is one of Jesus' closest followers. That's just the, the Gospels. And then you get to Paul, who saw the risen Christ and knows him as eyewitnesses. The same with Peter and James and John. And you have all these eyewitnesses that were there reporting what they saw. And that's what makes up the New Testament. So how does it work with these other books then? You read the History Channel, or you watch the History Channel, and it says 300s AD, they had these great big uh, councils and they decided what's the Bible and there were hundreds of books and they left tons of them out. That's partly true. Fullness, there's no, no reason to hide from the truth. The truth, uh, God is the God of all truth. That is partly true. There were councils in the 300s and there were lots of writings at that time and they did say we're going to exclude all these over here and just hold to the 27 books. But it's disingenuous the way they do it. The way they present it to you is not the reality of what happened. It wasn't that these councils got together and they said, man, we've got all these books. We've got 200 different books that tell of Jesus and his life and who he was and what he did. How in the world will we ever decide? No, what had happened in the early church is by about 150, 180 AD, the New Testament was set. Everybody knew what the New Testament was. It's being passed around the churches. We have letters from early church fathers quoting it, talking about it, saying, here's the books that make it up. And they knew because they were eyewitness accounts from people who were there. And that was the New Testament. But what happened over time is more and more things started to be written later and later and later. Right? Like, like the Time Magazine article. Gospel of Thomas. Oh, no, there's this other gospel. The gospel of Thomas was written in 180 A.D. 150 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it wasn't written by the apostle Thomas. It was written by someone else who took his name to lend more credence to their story, written 150 years after the fact. It was written under a pseudonym, a false name to say to give it more. Right? So the Gospel of Thomas is not an eyewitness account by one of Jesus' apostles. It was someone who wrote it 150 years later, who was a Gnostic, which is a, a type of worldview that they had at the time that was very different than Christianity, and they were putting their spin on it. And so it's an interesting book to read, to understand thinking at the time and what those people believed at that time, but it's not an eyewitness account of Jesus' life at all. 
And so what happened is as those books were written and as they came onto the scene, the early church was going, no, 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 gospel of tongues, that just was written. He wasn't there. That's not the story. And they knew that and they kept saying that. And by the time they had those councils, there were all these books that had grown up. And what they were saying is, these are the books that we know were eyewitness accounts. These are the people that were actually there. This is what we believe is God's word and what he's inspired. And we want to make sure that the church as a whole knows that. And so when you watch that uh, kind of thing on the history channel or something like that, and they just tell you that there were all these writings as if they were equally valid and they just pick and choose, that's not true. What we have in our New Testament is those that were written by the eyewitnesses that were there, that were part of it from the very beginning. And you can trust that what you have in your hands is what they wrote down. Now, I'm not going to do this today, right? This is a great, big, huge topic, right? And it's a lot of information and a lot of dates. And I told you it's not a normal sermon in that way. But about nine months ago, we did a sermon on the reliability of the Bible. And I took it from a totally different perspective about manuscripts and how we know and how we follow those things. I purposely didn't do that today because I want to just remind you, we just did that. And if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, it kind of dovetails nicely with this one because I purposely tried not to overlap all those things. And so we'll put that in the e-news this week where you can get it if you'd like to go listen to it because the two together give you a bigger, broader picture of the reliability of the Bible. And what we have when you put all of that together and you follow that history all the way through is that what you hold in your hands is what God has inspired And it tells this miraculous story of how God is working and how he's moving and how it all comes together in Jesus. And so that said, I want to just end the last couple minutes here with the passage that we read at the very beginning. And I want to remind you of this. It's just way of edification before we leave this morning. And so Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, Right? In the years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's explaining what's happened and he's encouraging Timothy, who is a pastor in the early church. And he says to him in first, or Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And there's this amazing thing when you look at the whole of the Bible. 40 different authors over 2000 years, three different continents. And it tells this incredible story of a God who created all things and who loves you so dearly. And that we created in his image, given the, the, the freedom of choice to choose, the freedom of will, rebel against them. But that God is so great and he is so gracious and he is so loving that he decides to pursue his people. And the Old Testament tells of God's faithfulness and his pursuit of his people all the way through it. And you get to the New Testament And you open it up and you see how all of the fulfillment of everything that God says he's doing has come to pass in Jesus. And you start to read the Bible. John Piper has this this phrase that I really love. He says, when you read the Gospels, there's a peculiar glory. 
And he says the peculiar glory is that this story comes together, that the God of the universe that we've rebelled against, that we've turned our backs on, that we've run away from, continues to pursue us. And then his answer is, I will come and do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And so Jesus does. The story of the gospel is he steps down and he lives the life that we haven't lived. And he dies the death that we deserve. But in so doing, he brings all of those strands together perfectly and beautifully and gloriously. And it all points to Jesus. And he says, he's done it. And that's what the gospel show you. And then you turn to Acts and it shows how that gospel went out and changed the entire world. As people heard the good news. And then you turn the page and you get to Romans and First and Second Corinthians and all the epistles. And it explains to you how everything God was doing in the Old Testament has found its ends in Jesus. And so when John Piper says there is a peculiar glory to the Bible, particularly of the Gospels, it's because all of it perfectly comes together in Jesus. And I can tell you all the background and the history and we can look at archaeology and all those things and those things are important. And I want you to be thinking and I want you to take what is true and I want you to wrestle with those things. But there is no substitute for opening your Bible and seeing the glory of who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus. There is no substitute for that. There is a peculiar glory when you hear the God of the universe laid down his life for you. That he took your sins upon himself and he brought them to nothing. And that the way that we are saved and the way that we are made new and the way that all of creation is going to be remade is by the grace of God for us in Jesus. You can't make that up. It doesn't make sense in our way of thinking. And when you see it for what it is, suddenly you go, yes. You say what Paul says to Timothy, you've been acquainted to these sacred writings since your youth, and they show you the glory of Jesus. God's word can be trusted. The 66 books that you hold in your hand is his word. And it all holds together beautifully and perfectly and finds its ends in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the truth of your word. We thank you that it stands up to scrutiny. We thank you when we start to look through history and we look at how it came together, that we see miracle after miracle after miracle. We thank you that you loved us enough to reveal yourself to us in these ways. We thank you that you loved us enough to come to us in Jesus, to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We thank you for this story that is true. And it's not just myths or fables that are made up, but it's the reality of what is true of who you are and who we are made in your image. We thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves in Jesus. We pray that as we leave here today that we'd have a confidence in your word, that we'd be trusting you in it, that we'd be seeking you through it. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.